Let us pray. Our Holy Father, let our trembling hearts hovering round thy word find sweet promises there to keep us from despair. Amen. Our Father in heaven, the great God of all wrath against sin and iniquity, can you spare us the chief of sinners and have mercy upon us? Right. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this hour, while we humble ourselves before thy greatness and ascribe greatness to thy name, that you will at the same time speak peace and comfort to those hearts that are yours, to those whom you have chosen, to those whom you have showed mercy and compassion. Let us, Lord, know that you have spoken the word. You have written our names in the book of life. The Lord Jesus Christ has undertaken for us, and we shall never be lost, nor is there a shadow of turning in your perfect faithfulness toward us. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us in this hour. We ask, according to the scriptures of the living God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling for the blessing of thy Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Let us open our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And let us publish the great name of our God and ascribe as Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 32. I read to you verses 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Amen. amen and amen. What an opportunity to exalt and glorify our great God by his own words in this passage of scripture. Please do not be bored. Please do not let this just be a mental exercise in learning the grammar, the sense, look into them and see the glory of the God that we worship and the blessing of mercy and compassion in your life. And for the methods that we follow in this church, though strange to most today, we trust our in agreement with the Word of God. The Bible says, as it records the Lord Jesus Christ of Samaria, that God seeks those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And this is part of his truth. And this is truth about him. And so this is how we worship him. By turning to passages of scripture like Romans 9, 14 through 16 and believing them. There are so many things that we can learn in these three verses. So many things good for our soul. I'm going to summarize them since I wrote 12 of them to you yesterday. And I've come up with another list myself. But I'll summarize them this way, which I've already said once this morning. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God shall man live. The words of these three verses are food for your souls if you will humble yourselves before them and pay attention. Let us begin in the 14th verse of Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? Paul asked and answered questions his readers might raise. And he did this often. He himself did not question election. There is more than just election considered here in Romans chapter 9. There is unconditional election, which is all the difference in the world. The Arminians want to tell you that they believe in election. God elected those who chose him. Now, you please tell me who did the electing in that case. Election is just another word for choice. If God elected those who chose Him, then men elect God and men elect themselves. But that is not the case here because the 11th verse said, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, the purpose of God according to election might stand. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. The 16th verse is going to say, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So looking at those two passages and seeing the rest of the chapter that we've covered so far, we know that unconditional election is being taught by the apostle. Unconditional meaning that God did not look upon men and foresee any goodness or any acts of righteousness on their part and therefore elect them because of those things. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 both tell us that the Lord did look down upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek after Him. But what did He find? None. There was none. And in case you don't understand that four-letter word, no, not one is what none means. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. God is not in all their thoughts. It's unconditional election. That's the only election that would work. Anyway, if God were to elect us in our natural state doing anything toward Him, none would be elected. The posed question of the apostle indicates something to us. The posed question indicates that what he had just taught, unconditional election, is contrary to human thought, or he wouldn't pose the question. I want you to delight in every word of God. I do try to emphasize that in every sermon. Why is the question posed here, what shall we say then? Is there? God knows our wicked hearts. God knows the skeptical, scornful, unbelieving, humanistic thinking of the human heart. And so he puts it in here ahead of time so that the apostle can quickly address what rises in a natural man's heart. The posed question tells us a great deal. Why is the question there? Because that's what men think about the great doctrine of election, which is God choosing to eternal life to children to adopt them with an everlasting inheritance and God choosing to pass over others and leave them to the just, holy, and righteous consequences of their sins. 
Natural man hates election of any kind. God's choice is affecting him rather than he making choices whether he wants God in his life or not. And God's choices are everywhere, but I cannot preach eight sermons on these three verses. Some of you, I suspect, are disappointed because I'm only covering three verses and I don't know how I shall do that today. I could spend sermons on each verse because there is so much to be said about how a natural man thinks. And there is so much to be said about the election that is visible all around you. The families that children are born into. The nations that children are born into. The things that happen to people. Those that are born blind. The things that occur in nations. The wickedness and the accidents that happen on highways. All of which we call acts of God. Yet, there is a God behind those acts. And He elects and chooses to bless. And He elects and chooses to withhold blessing. And we could elaborate on it, and we have in the past. And if you want to elaborate on it, then go look at a short little outline on the website called the Dominion of God. Amen. And see if there aren't a few examples there for you to consider in God's choices among men. But natural man hates God making choices that affect them. They want God watching from a distance and not being personally and intimately involved in their lives. Here, in Romans 9, God's election was stated in the last half of verse 6. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. There is a distinct difference in the nation. Then there was an election in Abraham's children in verses 7 through 9. He had eight sons. Only one was chosen by God. Then there was an election in verses 10 through 13 between Rebekah's twins, Esau and Jacob. The three examples are all true. For Scripture, verse 15 through 18 that we're dealing with right now, and the nature of God, verses 19 through 21, all so. Those three examples are true. And they're found in the Word of God. The dominion of God over angels and men is too much for most to admit. They don't preach, nor do they hear, nor do they understand, nor would they accept verses like, Proverbs 16.4 that we teach early to our children and that we preach often in this church. The Lord hath made all things for Himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Amen. And verses like Revelation 4.11 Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. For Thou hast created all things and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. O Lord God, Do you mean some little boy that was born into a family that didn't have parents that take care of him and he went off and joined a little organization called Second Mile where a football defense coach is alleged to have sodomized him? Lord God, how could that be for your pleasure? To show the wickedness in the hearts of men and the real wicked culprits And the whole event that I'm referring to, which I will leave in seconds, are the parents involved, and there isn't one thing said about them, not one syllable nor word has been uttered at all about them. The great culprits are parents for not protecting their children. But nonetheless, no matter what you can see in the world, in the course of evil, or in wickedness, or in wicked men, the Lord has made all for His own pleasure. Surely, 
The wrath of man shall praise thee, the psalmist wrote of God, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. There is no wrath of man ever exercised in a shower or anywhere else that God does not use to his own praise. Learn that, accept that, and humble yourself before that. That is the truth of God's Word. That does not excuse or justify those that perpetrate wickedness. They ought to be punished to the full extent of God's law. And if you don't have God's law, then they ought to be punished to the full extent of a nation's laws. Look at Isaiah chapter 45. The point that I am making right now is the dominion of God over angels and men is too much for most to accept. Isaiah, the 45th chapter. Very similar to words that we are going to come upon here in Romans 9. Look at the, I'm going to read the second half of verse 9 first, then I will read it again. Isaiah 45, 9b, the second sentence, starting in the middle of the verse. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work? He hath no hands. Now this is the potter and the clay that we're going to run into in Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. But here it is in Isaiah, taught in the Old Testament. Now let me read two verses to you, including that sentence. Let me let you hear God speak about this matter. Woe unto him, this is verse 9, Isaiah 45, 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Exclamation point. How should I emphasize it? Get the point. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherd of the earth. Let the broken pieces of pottery strive with one another, but don't let them dare strive against the potter himself. Shall clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work? He hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? It is not in the place of children to question their parents by saying, Why did you bring forth a blind child? Those parents didn't have any control over what was formed in the womb of a mother. Nor is it right for pottery to cry out against the potter. Let the, let the broken pieces of pottery strive with the broken pieces of pottery. Let men quibble and complain all they want. Let us in this assembly and let those who believe this, that hear this message, humble themselves before God and make Him the potter and accept the fact that we are clay and give Him glory in everything. I'm going to ascribe greatness to our God. Back to Romans chapter 9. The questions raised by proud, scornful, and skeptical men against election are legion. And I name them appropriately. Because they're fomented by devils. That's the name of many devils, legion. Jesus once asked the Gadarene, speaking to the Gadarene, but addressing the devils within him, what is your name? Legion. For we are many. 
And there are many arguments against election. And that's why we have the question, what shall we say then? Election raises questions in the eyes of natural man. Election should raise only one question in our mind. Am I elect? And that should be answered with 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 4, or 2 Peter chapter 1, 5 through 11, verses that I elaborated on when I was last with you, which I'm going to leave to your memories. But there's no question objecting against the election. It's just that we want to be part of it. And so we want to pursue God and make our calling and election sure. Paul quickly answers the question that might be asked. But there are are other questions. Some will say, if God chooses one and rejects another, doesn't that make him a respecter of persons? Oh, I've heard that so many times. I've read that so many times. Election would make God a respecter of persons. The Bible says that God is not a respecter of persons. Election proves that God is not a respecter of persons. To respect persons is to overthrow judgment due to circumstantial evidence like them being poor or rich, like previous relationships, like them being an uncle or a son, or by benefits provided by you altering justice, which is called a bribe. That is respect of persons. It is carefully and fully defined in the Bible. But when God, when the God of heaven perfectly applies righteousness and excludes some from the punishment of their sins by the substitution of a perfectly legal substitute, that is not respect of persons. He does it for his own glory. He doesn't do it for reward. He doesn't do it for relationship. And he doesn't do it for circumstantial pleadings. Right. I can't. There's no more time. That deserves a whole sermon. Because of all that is said in the Bible about respect of persons. Election proves that God does not respect persons. Election proves that God chooses one over another for His own glory. That is not respect of persons. That is respect of glory. That is respect of His glory. Some will say, God chooses one over another. Does it matter how we live? Of course. Good works please God and they prove election. Your question begs damnation. According to Romans 3, 7 and 8, the question arises, if God chooses one over another, how does man have a choice? He had it in Eden, friend. He had his choice in Eden. And if the truth is told, you have a choice every day. But every day you prove that your guilt and eternal punishment is warranted. What shall we say then? There are questions that pop up. Election is very unpopular. The Lord Jesus Christ, when He came to His hometown of Nazareth and entered into that synagogue, and He stood up and read the Scriptures and spoke most graciously, and they all wondered at the gracious words which He spoke when He sat down, and it was so quiet you could have heard a pin drop on carpet. He then said, You are going to ask me to do the miracles here that I have done elsewhere, but I want to remind you that in the days of Elisha, There were many widows in Israel. But Elisha was only sent to a widow of Zarepta, a foreign nation. In the days of Naaman, in the days of Elisha, that was Elijah that went to Zarepta. Forgive me. 
In the days of Elisha, there were many lepers in Israel. But Naaman the Syrian had his leprosy cleansed. And when he finished those two illustrations of election, that God had passed over the Jews and blessed foreigners with his electing grace and mercy in their deliverance from their particular predicaments, they rose up in wrath in that synagogue and led him out to the brow of a hill upon which their city was built to cast him down headlong. And if you've ever tried to explain election in its full-orbed beauty as described in the Bible, they're going to try to throw you down headlong. Then they are done that. For those of you that have tried it, you know that it's true. Men hate that doctrine, so we have the question, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? The first and most common objection against election is that it makes God bad. Election makes God evil. He's hateful or he's wicked to choose one over another. This opinion arises from man's basic love of himself, his fear of punishment, and his hatred of God. That's where it comes from. They're going to blame God. Why don't they say, is there unrighteousness with man? Isn't that the question that should be asked? If election is presented, the answer that we should have, if we're questioning the choice of one over another, is there unrighteousness with man? Well, yes, there is. There's unrighteousness in all of us. Therefore, God electing to save some is an act of pure mercy uncalled for by justice, holiness, or righteousness. That's the question that ought to be asked. But instead, natural man wants to accuse God of unrighteousness. Man's ideas of fairness, of justice, of righteousness are all corrupted by his sin nature. He doesn't know what is fair or right. Can't you tell by them protecting little baby spotted owls and yet aborting unborn babies that are human? Right. They have no regard for the victims in a murder. They only have regard for the perpetrator of murder in this country. They don't take all the victims of murder and put them up in a, put them up in a country club for seven to ten years, feeding them three squares a day, providing their clothes, dental, medical, and everything else they need. But they sure do that for the perpetrators. It should only take a few minutes or a few hours in most cases of murder to get rid of the murderer. And it should be very cheap. Bullets are cheap. I'll pay for them. Too easy. The Lord didn't choose bullets. He chose something pleasant, like stoning. It would take a while. I'll buy the stones. I believe you would too. Man's ideas of fairness are so messed up. Men presume what God must be like, but their deceitful hearts are desperately wicked. And God warns them to forget their ideas of Him or He'll tear them in pieces. In Psalm 50, he said, you all all together thought that I was like yourself. Because I kept quiet, you thought that I must be approving of your sins. Ye that forget God, you better get cleared up in your mind, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. That's what he says about your ideas of God. 
This, this question, is there unrighteousness with God? Is God bad because He elects? Is so wrong, and it comes from the profane heart of man. They want God watching from a distance, as some of them sing, not making choices for their lives. These pompous, proud scorners will say, and I have heard this with my own ears, if God is like that, then I don't want to go to heaven. Don't worry about it, is the right answer. Have you ever heard him say that? God, if God elects one man over another to go to heaven, then I don't want to go to heaven. Do you know that Israel once said, would to God that we had died in the wilderness and wouldn't have to go across this Jordan River and face those giants in the land of Canaan? What did God say? You have well spoken. Don't you ever think such a thing about the great God of heaven. We all deserve to go to hell in the lake of fire. He doesn't, we don't deserve another chance. We had our chance in Eden. If you're 30 years old and you've lived 10,000 plus days, you've had 10,000 plus chances and you've blown every one of them. The only time you've done good is because God worked it in you, both the will and to do of His good pleasure. When He left you alone, all you did was choose the course of this world and follow the prince of the power of the air. Lord God, forgive us for even coming close to ever thinking anything like that. We reject and repudiate it. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4 earlier this morning taught us that God is our rock. He is just and true. He is without iniquity. He is fair. He is right. He is perfect in His ways. It's the best summary in the whole Bible. It's an axiom of truth that you can always believe about God. And it is sufficient by itself to answer this question. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid because of Deuteronomy 32.4. But the apostle's going to go further in his explanation than using Deuteronomy 32.4 because he wants to deal directly with election. So he will quote a verse about election in verse 15. The only intelligent reason this question is posed is due to man's natural perspective about election. Paul was not silly. Paul did not waste words. He did not pose and answer a question unrelated to the topic at hand. These words, along with all others in the Bible, are inspired. Election does not seem fair at all to a race presuming that they're important, valuable, and loved. They can only see themselves with the right to choose. They can't admit that God might have that right. If you want to elaborate on that subject, then a sermon outline on our website, God's will, man's will, or free will, has a few thoughts for you on that subject. I want you to turn to Job 36 with me, because as Elihu said, I would like to ask you to suffer with me for a few more minutes, that I might speak on behalf of our Maker. Amen. Job chapter 36. What shall we say then when we hear the doctrine of election? When we hear God separating twins before they had done any good or evil in the womb of their mother who was a believer? When we read about that, that God loved one and hated the other. When we read that God chose one out of eight sons of Abraham who was the father of the faithful and the friend of God. When we read that God is a potter and makes vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor by choice. What if God, willing, that is the potter was willing to make vessels of wrath fitted for destruction? 
As we're going to learn in this passage, there is no question in this passage that we are not dealing with national privilege. We are dealing with eternal life. And the adoption is the children of God. National privilege was mentioned in verses 1 through 5 by the apostle pointing out that within those that had national privilege, there were only some that were the elect of God and the true children of God. Job chapter 36, verses 1 through 4. There's only one man in the book of Job that knew what was going on. It was the young man Elihu. Would to God there were young men in this church, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, who understand what's going on in the world. Elihu also proceeded and said, Suffer me a little, and I will show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar and will ascribe righteousness to my maker. Amen. Is there unrighteousness with God? I will ascribe righteousness to my maker for tearing you down, Job, to the very edge of death. For destroying everything you have in assets, family, and health. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker for truly my words shall not be false. He that is perfect in knowledge is with thee. Are you that confident of scripture? So that you can say with the apostle, God forbid. God forbid. Do you know where to go to prove that God forbid is the right answer in somebody objecting against election? I like Elihu's words there. Will you suffer me a little? It's not time for our break yet. Will you suffer me a little to ascribe righteousness to our God? Is there unrighteousness with God? How can it be unrighteous to pardon some condemned rebel? By a perfect legal substitute. How is it unrighteous? How is it unrighteous for God to free someone from their sins by punishing His only beloved Son who had never sinned with the judgment that the sins of the accused deserved and then freeing them because He fully fulfilled His law and prosecuted to the extent of the law the punishment necessary upon his own son. How can it be unrighteous to punish other condemned criminal rebels for their own voluntary sins? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is there unrighteousness with God to punish his own son to free some? Is there unrighteousness with God to punish the rest for their own sins that they committed voluntarily? If God must forgive and pardon all condemned criminals... Should the president do the same? Do you want serial rapists? Do you want serial murderers loosed on our streets by our president? Ah, the mind of man is very confused, isn't it? They get upset about the pardons the president does give at the end of his term. If God must forgive and pardon all condemned criminals, should He forgive and pardon Satan? Do you want Satan your neighbor in heaven? No one thinks about that because all they want to do is accuse God of unrighteousness instead of thinking righteously. Instead of not judging by appearance but giving righteous judgment. Look at Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Matthew chapter 20. This is a parable of a householder. 
and his payroll department. Some worked 12 hours and got a penny for the day. They were day laborers. Some worked nine, six, three, and one. And they all got paid a penny. And I can't, I do not have time to elaborate right now on the application of this particular parable, but it is exactly the subject of Romans 9 through 11. The Jews working the 12 hours and angry with the Gentiles like you and me coming in and getting our penny for an hour. Bless his holy name. Look at what he says. Look at what he says. Matthew chapter 20. 12 is the complaint. Let's get 11. Here's the complaint. And when they had received it, they murmured against the goodman of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this land even as unto thee. Now listen to these words and let them humble your soul. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. We'll be back to this passage in chapters 10 and especially 11 to understand what this was saying to the Jews who thought that they deserved the best and they despised the idea of Gentiles being brought in and blessed by God. Many are called, but few are chosen. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. There is no unrighteousness with Him. Right. He has the right to pay whatever he chooses to pay, especially when the day laborers agreed on the pay. I'm glad that we get to agree as Gentiles on this side of the cross. For one hour, we receive our penny. We receive the kingdom of heaven. Though we were for 4,000 years the scum of this earth and worshipped everything imaginable but the Creator. Back to Romans 9. Back to Romans 9. God would be unrighteous for saving Jacob. Not for rejecting Esau, except for the Lord Jesus Christ. But men want to think that he is unrighteous for not saving Esau. Rather than look at election as unfair, look at election as far better than fair. Because it's mercy. It's grace. If you were to correctly measure election by fairness, then no one should be elected or saved. If God was just to be fair, no one would be saved. Total depravity is key, my brethren. In every discussion that you ever have with anyone about salvation, you must go back to total depravity. The question that ought to be asked in this verse is, is there unrighteousness with man? Yes, there is so much unrighteousness that we all deserve an eternal hell of torment. It is only by pure grace that some are saved. And there's a reason why some are saved and not all. And it's given to us in verses 23 and 22 of this very chapter. 
Total depravity is key because if it were not for election, none would be saved. If it weren't for God choosing some of us against our own will, no one would be saved. If God saved none, He would be perfectly righteous. But He is also gracious and merciful and compassionate to whom He will, as the next verse tells us. Can you sing with Isaac Watts as we sang a few minutes ago? Should sudden vengeance seize my breath? The just in death. And if my soul were sent to hell, thy righteous law approves it well. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. The apostle gave his short answer. The response to such rebel objections or questions is short and sweet. Your thoughts are rejected. This is Paul's concise rejection and revulsion of their rebel question or false suggestion that God is unrighteous for electing. Rather than forbidding such ideas himself, he said, God forbid. You know, there's a time and a place where even Michael the archangel says, the Lord rebuke thee. Because ultimate authority is in God himself. And God's authority and God's righteousness and God's truth is expressed in Scripture. So the apostle, instead of saying, I forbid such a thought, God forbid, the ultimate authority and source of truth in the universe, keep that distinction clear. Michael the archangel knows the difference between I rebuke thee or thou bad devil and the Lord rebuke thee. And the Bible teaches us that distinction. Paul made no effort, and this I find so precious, Paul made no effort to modify the doctrine of election. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Oh, my dear brethren, please, whatever I have said that might have caused you to think that way, let me rephrase it. Let me preach it a little more palatable for your taste buds. Paul didn't do anything like that, nor did the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot varnish the truth when you come to a matter like election. It is a horrible doctrine to the wicked because that's what they're, they're getting what they deserve. It is a beautiful doctrine to the righteous for they're getting what they don't deserve. Paul did not use a single word to make election more acceptable palatable or reasonable to men. He simply declared it, proved it, and defended it. He didn't worry the doctrine that he had stated might lead to their thoughts that God is unrighteous. He just rejected their thoughts. God forbid your thoughts are wrong. He didn't apologize to his hearers or try to explain himself better. The Lord dealt the same way with men. One time the apostles came. Now, well, one time we're told about. Well, no, it's not one time. But one of the times that the apostles came to the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 15 and said, don't you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you just taught when he said a man is condemned not by what goeth into his mouth, but by what cometh out. And he said, let them alone. Every plant that my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. They be blind leaders of the blind, let them both fall into the ditch. See, Jesus didn't say, well, were they offended? I'll reach that next Sunday, and I'll just do it a little bit better. Never! John chapter 6, 
kept poking that crowd that was following him, that wanted to make him their king, by telling them, except they eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, they have no life in them. When he was told that was a hard saying, he said, how about this one? And he gave them a harder saying. And then he said, didn't I already tell you that except my father draw a man, he cannot and will not believe on me or come after me. Will ye go away also? Right. Lord, we believe and are sure that thou hast the words of eternal life. Thou art the son of God and hast the words of eternal life. Verse 15, for he saith to Moses, this is so precious to me if you love the Bible. You know, here we are, the 400th anniversary of the publishing of the King James Bible this year. Year 2011, 400 years after 1611. And here the apostle in verses 6 down through 13 has presented election, declaring it and illustrating it three ways. An election in Israel an election among Abraham's eight sons, an election between Rebekah's twins. Then he poses a question that the natural man would ask. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is that the question that's popped in your evil hearts? God forbid. Now how does he answer the question about election, unconditional election, and whether it's righteous or unrighteous, whether God has the right to choose to be kind to some and not to others? On what basis does the apostle defend himself? Now, the apostle Paul had apostolic authority from the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, when dealing with his brethren, he would say, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Not here. And there's, there's wisdom in that for us. Don't you ever leave the Word of God when debating, discussing, or answering questions about the doctrine of the Bible, especially the doctrine of salvation, and especially things as unpalatable to men as the doctrine of election, you stay with Holy Scripture. The apostle could have said, I declare unto you. Does he ever say that in an epistle? Oh, yeah. I declare unto you that which also I receive, that Lord Jesus Christ, that's 1 Corinthians 15. The first passage I mentioned is 1 Corinthians 11. Here he said, for he saith to Moses. He goes back and finds the Bible verse that will defend what he is declaring. He has declared unconditional election. He is declaring that God is absolutely righteous in choosing one over another. He's saying, God forbid, and he thought to the contrary. And here's the basis on which he did that. For he saith to Moses. That is God saying to Moses, My brethren, we do not fall into the trap of reasoning doctrine out from opinions, feelings, or apparent facts. Right. Truth requires God's revelation. Man's rationalization depends on deceitful lies of the human heart. We keep the two absolutely separate. This is one of the things that makes our church very different from others. We do not try to rationalize God's truth. We understand that truth is a revelation, and that's the only way it is known. God revealed it through the Bible. That's what revelation means. Rationalization means that a man is able to reason it out and make it sound reasonable. But because man has a deceitful heart that is desperately wicked above all things, he cannot reason correctly. 
It is common when you're dealing with election to hear about feelings, opinions, sentiment, emotion. Do not allow any ever with you. And do not you ever allow yourself to reason outside the Scriptures. I spent weeks with PowerPoint presentations with you men last over the last two years. How that we are to reason in the Scriptures. Right. We start with Scripture and reason from them. And this is what the Apostle does. I just love this little expression. For he saith to Moses. Paul could have worded it so many different ways, but there's a lesson in it for us. And it just causes me to rejoice that even the Apostle would use Scripture. And for those Jews, and they were the target of Romans 9 through 11, a, a large part of the target, for those Jews that would have objected against the election that he's describing here, he turns them to their own Scriptures and their great prophet, their great teacher, Moses. For he saith to Moses, Now, this is in Exodus chapter 33, and for time's sake, it's in Exodus 33, Moses asked God, show me your glory. Show me your glory in Exodus 32. In Exodus 33, it's for the glory. In Exodus 34, God showed him his glory. And do you know what his glory was? It's right here. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You know, God told Moses, no man can see my glory and live. But I will put my hand over thee, and I will pass by and show you a little of my backsides. Do you want to see? When God is asked to show His glory, do you know what comes out? And let this humble every pulpit in America. Do you know what comes out? Election. I am that I am, and I will upon whom I will is the glory of God. And our intellectual understanding of it is no evidence of election. The work of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. That's how we know. For he saith to Moses, if the Bible declares a fact, then we can say, God forbid, to anything else. And that's what we should say. I will have mercy. Mercy is forgiveness. Think about it with me. Mercy. What is it? God says, I will have mercy. Mercy is forgiveness, freedom, or favor. Granted by one having the perfect right to punish another party. Mercy is forgiveness, freedom, or favor granted by one having the perfect right to punish another. If the one having the perfect right to punish grants forgiveness, gives freedom, or bestows favor, It is mercy, entirely undeserved. God rightly has the power to punish men with death in several senses, naturally, physically, spiritually, and eternally, by their choices in Eden and by their choices every day. God rightly has the power to withhold blessings or favor of any kind in this life or the next 
He is not beholden to any, and He owes us nothing. The fact that He sends His sunshine and His rain on evil and the good is a witness and a testimony that He is a good being because He shows mercy even toward them. Now it's mercy that results in their greater punishment because with that daily mercy bestowed upon them, they do not give Him glory. And so they will have more to give an account for in the day of judgment. It does not turn to their deliverance. Does it, does it turn to your praise? When you see, a be- have we had some beautiful days the last couple of weeks? The sky's so blue, the sun's so nice, the humidity's so nice, the temperature's so great. What, what happens? Do you, do you choke out the words? Do they flow out? Wow. Do you, do you grab your wife and say, paint it bluer than that? Because you're praising God. But the wicked don't do that. God is not in all their thoughts. I will have mercy. Mercy requires the choice of the will of the one holding the rightful authority and power to punish. That's what mercy requires. For any man to obtain God's forgiveness, his freedom or favor, God must choose to not punish that man. Mercy is not a right. Mercy can never be a right. If mercy is a right, then it's not mercy. Because if you have a right to freedom or to forgiveness or to favor, then you're not under the rightful authority or power of another to be punished. Then it's not mercy. But salvation is all of mercy and all of grace. Meaning that you have so condemned yourself that God has the rightful power and authority to judge you, even for eternity. It's a choice. But God cannot make that choice It's called what? Endless wisdom. God cannot make that choice to choose to grant forgiveness or freedom or favor to a condemned man because his nature will not allow it. His holy nature and his righteous nature must punish sin. He cannot choose to acquit. He cannot choose to clear. Exodus 34.7 and Nahum Nahum 1.3 Exodus 34.7 He will by no means clear the guilty is part of God revealing His glory to Moses. So He chose the Lord Jesus Christ. He devised the most infinitely wise plan. I will incarnate myself in human flesh in Jesus of Nazareth and I will pour out my wrath and punishment upon Him. And by that legal substitute, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. And that is the message of the gospel. So that God may be just and the justifier in Romans 3.26. Look at the will that's involved. This whole religious world that we now live in, everything they do is for the will of the sinner. They want the sinner to exercise his will. Will you today do such and such? Will you bring your children, your infants, to the baptismal font? Will you? Will you? Will you? Will you? I will, God said, and that is His glory. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And that is the will that we will exalt in this church. And when it comes to your will, I revert to Philippians 2 and other places like it, 
that say it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. There is no willing and there is no working in order for you to get God's mercy. There is willing and working that is pleasing to God because of God's mercy. And that is the difference. And it's all the difference and it's a huge difference. It's an uncrossable gulf and chasm between their doctrine and the doctrine of Scripture. I will have mercy. Look at that. Romans 9, 15. I will four times. He saith to Moses, you want to raise a question about the election that I've just declared in three forms? In verses 6 through 13, you want to question election and say, is there unrighteousness with God? Well, you Jews that are questioning it the most, I present to you what God said to Moses when Moses wanted to see God's glory. When Moses wanted to see God's glory, God said to him, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I don't owe mercy to the Jews. I don't owe mercy, owe mercy to the famous. I don't owe mercy to those that are willing. Listen, there will be a lot of wicked men in the day of judgment that are willing. No one wants to go to hell. They're going to want to go to heaven. Lord, Lord, have I not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name done many wonderful works. And in thy name cast out devils. Lord, Lord. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. I never chose to have mercy on you. I never chose to have compassion on you. The will of man is out of the equation because our will is against God. God must make us willing. And He does that by first being willing Himself to send His own Son to be a substitute for our sins. Why? Because it seemed good in His sight. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? Are you going to pick on me and accuse me of unrighteousness? Because I chose to save some from the punishment they deserved? Hello? Do you understand how corrupt and wicked that is? To question God's righteousness because He chooses to save some? Why in the world do you think He should choose to save all? Because you are worthy of it? Compassion is the feeling or emotion when a person is moved by the suffering or distress of another. It's the desire to relieve. It's pity that inclines to spare or to succor. Jesus had compassion on the widow of Nain. Pharaoh's daughter had compassion on the baby Moses in its little ark of bulrushes. But in order for God to have compassion on a sinner, because His holy and righteous nature requires Him to punish that sinner, He must have a legal substitute to satisfy His own nature. And it's only by choosing us in Christ Jesus that He can love any man. If you want more on that subject, then find the sermon outline on the website, Does God Love Everybody? Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God had to put us as sinners into the Lord Jesus Christ before He could love us. In order to fulfill the second half of verse 15, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He had to put us into the Lord Jesus Christ where He had compassion upon us. 
because Jesus Christ made us holy and without blame. The I will and the will of salvation is in God himself. And that's where we leave it. Every expression in the Bible about your will is because God worked it in you. When the Bible says, Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Are you kidding? Do you have a problem with that verse? Who in the world do you think that's talking about? Who in the world do you think that's talking about? Everybody that doesn't want to go to hell? Let's go downtown Greenville right now. You give me a dollar for everyone that says they don't want to go to hell, and I'll give you a dollar for everyone that says they want to. Who's going to end up the richer man at the end of the afternoon? Whose silver will let him take the water of life freely? I ask you, who will? Whose silver will let him take the water of life freely? Lay hold of eternal life, brethren. It is free. It was paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay hold of it. But the only ones laying hold of it are those already born again that God worked in them to will and to do of His good pleasure. They're the only ones that are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You think a natural man's hungering and thirsting after righteousness and wants to flee to the water of life and drink deeply of it? Come on. Verse 16, I know I'm way beyond my time. Verse 16, So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So then. This is such an obvious conclusion, it should be no surprise at all. Think. Paul declared election, verse 6. Paul illustrated among eight sons, verses 7 through 9. He illustrated it between two twins, verses 10 through 13. He said, God forbid that there's any unrighteousness in the matter. Then he proved it by Scripture in verse 15. So then. If we put all of that together, so then... The obvious conclusion should be very obvious to you. So then, it is not of him that willeth. Just because you're a Jew and you think you deserve God's mercy, just because you're a Jew and you want God's mercy. Esau wanted God's mercy. Esau wanted Isaac's mercy. He didn't get them. Though he had much strong crying. So then, it is not of him that willeth. What is it? It is not of him that willeth. It, that the purpose of God according to election might stand in granting mercy to some and not to others. That is what the whole context teaches us. It's what verse 11 teaches us, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. It is what the last part of this verse teaches us, the obtaining of mercy. It's making the children of God, verse 8. What is it? So then, it. The purpose of God according to election standing in the granting of mercy to some and the not granting of mercy to others. It, so then it, is not of him that willeth. Your will does not get you the mercy of God. Now we know that from, from other reasons like total depravity. In this particular passage it's because all mercy is found in the will of God himself. And if you were to read Ephesians chapter 1 that you love so much, verses 4 through 6, where it says, according to the good pleasure of His will. That's the will that's involved. The it is God's electing grace and granting us mercy. So the Bible says in John chapter 1 and thir- verse 13, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. Not, 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 but... Here, not, not, but. So then it is not of him that willeth. 
It is not of him that runneth. It is but God that showeth mercy. Just like John 1.13. And how we become the children of God. Which were born by the choice of God. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. Running here is not running as you're thinking of it. In sprinting or jogging, it is effort. It is works. It is methods. It is means. And the whole religious world ignores Romans 9.16 and goes about doing whatever they can in the way of running all their methods, all their madness, all their means in order to get sinners to exercise their will toward God for mercy. God will be merciful to you if you will just. But the Bible says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. We can know that God has been merciful to us if we will just believe on His Son, Jesus Christ, and add to our faith, virtue, knowledge, and so forth. In Second Peter chapter 1, But of God that showeth mercy. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So then... Paul declared election. Paul illustrates election. Paul denies the thoughts of man about election, making God unrighteous. And Paul proves election by quoting scripture from Exodus chapters 33 and 34. So then, on the basis of all that, especially the scripture that I have just quoted, it is not of him that willeth, because it is I will, I will, I will, I will, of verse 14. It is, of verse 15, it is not of any man willing, or of any man running. It's God's choice to bestow mercy. So you Jews and you Gentiles under the sound of my voice today, when you consider the doctrine of election that's declared here and declared in other places in the Bible, it is based on God's will. And doesn't he have the right to do with his own as he will? And he does as it seemeth him good in his showing mercy and compassion. Mercy is not a right. Mercy is an incredible blessing. And the mercy of eternal life is beyond description. It is the unspeakable gift of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. More could be said. Maybe more should be said. But I hope you understand these verses. I hope God that you want to publish it and ascribe greatness and righteousness to Him, that there is no unrighteousness in Him, and that you want to bless and praise Him for willing to show mercy upon you. And if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to follow Him in obedience, in baptism, and all the other things that He requires of you, that's evidence that He has chosen to have mercy upon you because it is Him that works in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. Now it is your duty to work it out with fear and trembling. And let's do that. May Jesus Christ be praised.